0: At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. In this entire month, we are talking about this issue of the gift because... Gifts are important at Christmas time, aren't they? If if you don't think so, you ought to ask your kids, and they'll tell you how important gifts are at Christmas time. But where does that idea come from? Well, the idea of gifts and Christmas go all the way back to the very first Christmas, because Jesus Himself was this amazing gift, and our culture has has taken it to all kinds of levels with our gift giving in this season. You know, last week I talked about how many dollars were given last year at Christmas time by Americans. But this year, just on Black Friday alone, $9 billion was spent. And Cyber Monday, $10.8 billion were spent. Now, that is a lot of stuff that has been bought. I have no idea how Saturday and Sunday did, but I'm guessing that they did pretty well also. Uh, Maybe you were out buying some gifts at that time. But again, here's the thing. If $10.8 billion was spent on gifts on Monday, I'm guessing that all of those gifts were not for you. Right? Only some of them were. So how do we know which gifts are for us? How do we know which gifts are intended for us to enjoy? Now, as a kid... I was always inquisitive about the gifts that my parents might have have given to me for Christmas. And so I would go on a hunt. Now, we lived in the same house my entire time growing up. And so by the time I got to be, you know, 9, 10, 11, I knew where all the hiding places were. And so I would go and I would find these gifts. And I remember one particular year, this is not true confessions. My parents understand this. They're watching right now online. Uh, But I found one particular gift one year that was the game Jungle Hunt for the Atari 2600. And I was pumped that I was getting that game because I just knew that it would be for me. I mean, who was this gift going to be for? Grandma? Absolutely not. That was going to be mine. But then Christmas Eve comes around, Christmas Day, and Jungle Hunt is nowhere to be found. And so I began asking some very pointed questions to my parents because I assumed that that gift was for me. Well, why did I assume it was for me? Well, I assumed it was for me because I wanted it, and I saw it in the house, and so I assumed it must be for me. But how do we really know which gifts are for us? Well, the way that we know that the gifts are for us is by what's written on that tag. If it says to Mark, then I can open it and enjoy it. But if it says to someone else, then I know that gift was intended for another. And it's important for us to remember that at this time of year, because when we think about Jesus as the gift, the gift that God has given, that provides eternal life and forgiveness and hope and all of those things, how do we know that that gift of Jesus was for you? And how do we know that that gift is for me? Well, inside of the Christmas historical account that is recorded for us in the New Testament, what we see is a number of tags that are listed in that account so that we would know in no uncertain terms that Jesus came for us but rather than listing all of our individual names, because there are billions of people, our Bible would be much longer. If you think First Chronicles is long now, imagine if all of our names were written in there, right? But rather than listing all of our individual names, categories of people are, are referenced inside of the Christmas account so that we would know that Jesus was a gift that was intended for us all. Last week, we looked at Isaiah's prophecy and we saw how Jesus is the gift for the distressed. Those who live in this stumpy world, Jesus comes as a shoot that will eventually turn into a tree that will provide blessing to us all. Today we're going to take another look into the Christmas account as we're going to see that Jesus is not just for the distressed, but also He is for the decent. He is for those whose lives somewhat look like they are together, people like Mary and Joseph. And by looking at their account, by looking at their lives, we can find something about how all of us, including those of us who would consider ourselves some of the decent, how we are also people in need of the gift of Jesus at Christmas. And so we're going to see that today by looking at the accounts of Luke chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 1. But before we look at those verses together, I want to just talk about a perspective about life that exists in our country today, really in our world today. You know, there are a number of different philosophies that people have that help them make sense of the world around them. And two such philosophies that I think are prevalent inside of our world today go something like this. There is one perspective which we'll call atheistic naturalism. Now, atheistic. Let's break this down. What does that mean, atheistic? Do not believe in God, right? Do not believe that there is a God. And naturalism, let's break that down, just that first part, natural. What do you think a naturalist would think? That what is going on is all explainable by natural means. So an atheistic naturalist believes that everything around us is just the product of natural consequences, that it just kind of unfolds, that there is no God who created it. It's just a set of events that have happened by random chance or by some kind of natural pattern. Now, atheistic naturalism is one perspective that is prevalent inside of our world today, and and, and some in the scientific community might hold to that. And Some of you in this room probably hold to that kind of a perspective about life, But a second perspective that I think we need to consider is the perspective of deism. Now, the idea of deism, and that's not a word that we use very often today, but you might be familiar with it from American history. It's this idea that goes back to an idea that some of our founding fathers in America had that believed that God exists and that God created this world, but He has basically a hands-off approach to the world at this time. Maybe the idea that God created the world kind of like a watchmaker would make a watch, and after winding that watch, he sets it down and then he steps away, never to touch it again. This is a deistic philosophy. It's different in that it believes in God, but it believes that God is not involved in the world around us today. Because of that, both atheistic naturalism and deism have something in common. They believe that there is no God who currently intervenes in our world. Now, no doubt you have either thought this or you have related to people who have shared one of those kinds of perspectives, and they try to have everything make sense in their world based on one of those two ideas. But here is something important for us to consider today, friends. It's important for us to consider that neither of these ideas are compatible with historical biblical Christianity. See, the idea that that God either doesn't exist, obviously that one doesn't jive with the Scriptures, right, because God is all over the Scriptures. And the idea that God just created the world and then stepped away and is never to intervene inside human affairs also doesn't jive with Scripture, because we see God involved in human affairs and events throughout the Scripture, It's not possible for us to conceive of a version of Christianity that is biblical and historical and is also not supernatural because Christianity is God intervening. It is God doing for us what is otherwise impossible. We're going to see that today as God intervenes in a supernatural way even for decent people like Mary and Joseph as we look at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, and Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. I want to read those verses for us, and then after I read them, we'll back up and make a couple of observations from these verses today. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, says this. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And then in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, friends, in these two sections of God's Word, we're going to see two things today that remind us that the gift of Jesus is for the decent. Well, what's the first of those things? The first thing we see is this. The Christian life is supernatural. It's not just natural. It is supernatural. It is not just natural. And by that, I mean much of our life is natural, right? I mean, our our bodies are designed in such a way we take air in and it goes out. We breathe involuntarily. We eat food and it is digested. Those are not all individual miracles of God for those kinds of things to work. But there is an element to our Christianity that goes beyond just the things that God has created in the design and the system of the world in which we live that go to His supernatural intervention into our lives. And these verses that we have read from the Christmas account drive that point home. Now, where do we see that? Well, it's important for us to begin by thinking about Mary and Joseph. So, who are Mary and Joseph? Well, as we look at these accounts in Matthew 1 and Luke 1, one of the things that stands out to us is that Matthew or, or that uh, Mary and Joseph are decent people, right? They're just, they're very decent people. People they they come across as as you know pretty normal but but very decent folks. There's not major issues in their life that are revealed in these first few verses. But what else do we know about them? Well, about Mary, we know this: we know that she's just a small town girl living in a lonely world. I asked Greg earlier if anybody would know what I was talking about. I appreciate your taste in 1980s music. Um, Mary was just a small town girl and she was living in this lonely world. She she grew up in the town of Nazareth. Nazareth was a town that that had no nothing extraordinary about it. We saw last week that the Hebrew word Nazar is the word for shoot or just a small little plant. Nazareth was just this small little place, and it's where Mary was from. There's nothing about her life that that, that stands out beyond just. This this young woman who is living in this lonely world in the little town of Nazareth. Well, how about Joseph? What do we learn about Joseph? Well, Joseph was a just carpenter boy, born and raised in South Galilee. That one doesn't work as well, but if you're familiar with the song, you might catch that one as well. Joseph was just, just he's a just guy. You know, he, he was... Living his life the best he could. He had a moral compass. But as he was living out that life, he was living it out just in that same little backwoods town of Galilee in the city of Nazareth. See, that was who they were. There was nothing spectacular about them. Now, we also know that there was a royal heritage in their life. In Matthew's genealogy, we find out that Joseph was a descendant of King David. But being in that line had not translated into worldly gain for Joseph. As a matter of fact, Joseph and Mary were were not people of great wealth. We know this because after Jesus was born, they give an offering on Jesus' behalf at the temple, and it was the offering of poor people. It wasn't the offering of rich people. So though they had a royal heritage, they were living a very Spartan life. And we also know about them in this era that they were betrothed to be be, be married. Now, we don't think about betrothed very often today, but it's important for us to understand what betrothal meant in the first century. In Israel at that time, when a man and a woman would agree to marriage, they, they would have this betrothal period where they would be committed to one another like a husband and a wife are committed. The only way that that relationship could be severed was with a divorce. And yet, they, though they were committed, they were still living separately. And for a period of a year, the husband would live in one residence and the, the, the wife-to-be would live in another residence. And over that year, the, the purity of the wife and the, the husband would be demonstrated as they wouldn't have a child in that season of their life. And so Mary and Joseph, this, this small-town girl living in this lonely world, this, this just carpenter boy living in South Galilee from a royal heritage, but with very little resources that they had access to, are engaged to be married. Now, something happened. And what happened to them next is something that cannot be explained by their decency. Right? it's not like you just get Mary and Joseph together and their decency produces what we're getting ready to read in Scripture. What is getting ready to happen is not something that happens just by a natural event or natural consequences. What happens is a supernatural intervention of God. Mary's story is told in Luke angel comes to Mary and says to her, "'Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David.'" And then after the angel tells Mary that she will conceive supernaturally of this child, the angel also makes a visit to Joseph, which I think was a great gift to both Joseph and to Mary. Right? If the angel doesn't make that visit, Mary's story plays out very differently. And if the angel doesn't visit, Joseph is fishing for details about what happened. But thankfully, the angel goes and visits Joseph and says similar things. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Friends, in in both of these accounts, what we see is not a, a natural event, but a supernatural event. It is not a God who, like a watchmaker created this world and spun it and then set it down, and then through some means of randomness, God shows up one day in Bethlehem. That's not what we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is God supernaturally intervening. God had a plan. Jesus came on purpose. God intervened in a supernatural way so that Jesus would be born at the right time in history inside of the right family, in order that he might be a blessing to the nation of Israel at first, but ultimately to all peoples, including you and including me. Friends, it was not an accident, and it was not a distant God, but it was an active God who brought Christmas to pass. It was an active God that sent Jesus on purpose into this world. Well, when the message comes out that Jesus is coming and the angel tells Mary and the angel tells Joseph, how did they respond? Well, they responded with a natural response, right? They respond, both of them. This is the, something of what they would say. They would say, hey, angel, we appreciate you visiting us, but you don't understand that's not the way it works here in our world. That's not the way this plays out. There is no way naturally we can come up with that what you have said can actually happen. That's what they said. At least that's the Mark Robinson standard version. But that's not near as good as the original. So let's read what the Scripture actually says. Mary says to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? There's no natural way that this can happen. Matthew says, or uh, Joseph says, Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. In other words, Joseph, the natural explanation was that Mary must have been with another man and Joseph could have brought her out to the city gate and subjected her to public shame, but he chose not to. He was just going to divorce her quietly, just gather a friend or two and write a letter and call off the wedding, call off the relationship, divorce her quietly. It was a natural explanation. Both Mary and Joseph responded in this way. But God keeps talking. And through the angel, the message becomes clear that what is happening is not a natural thing, but it is a supernatural thing. The angel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God, for nothing is impossible with God. This is a supernatural thing that is happening to Joseph. The angel says this, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It is a supernatural thing when Jesus entered the world on purpose, at the right time, God entered this world to pursue you and to pursue me. Now, friends, as they heard that message, they responded. And how did Mary and Joseph respond? That's right. They didn't stop believing. Okay, you're still with me. I'm just making sure. And if you were wondering which 80s song I was referring to, now I've removed all doubt. Okay, so Mary says to the angel, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And Joseph, when he wakes from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. You see, though they had approached the situation initially from purely natural perspective, They're reminded that it is God who is speaking to them through the angel. And with God, anything is possible. And so they choose to step away from their natural understanding of things and embrace the supernatural provision of God, and it would absolutely revolutionize their life. See, what they found was that Christianity is supernatural. It's not just natural. Now, friends, that is true of Mary and Joseph, but it's also absolutely true for you and for me. Christianity is not just natural for us. In other words, if we were to think that that Christianity were natural, then it would ultimately be about us. It would be all about us. And Jesus would have come just to give decent people like you and me just a few more moral things to do. But that's not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not about us just doing a few more good deeds, though so that's certainly a part of it. and It's an outflow of it. It's not what it's all about. Christianity, in its definition, is a supernatural thing. It is the sovereign, eternal, holy God taking on a body in Jesus so that he might be God with us. And so that God with us might do for us what is otherwise impossible. Forgiving our sins by offering His life as a sacrifice on the cross and providing supernatural provisions so that we might live a life of obedience following Him and proclaiming Him, not just in this room, but among the nations. Friends, this is what Jesus has done, not just a natural thing, but He has done a supernatural thing for you and for me. May we never reduce Christianity to just something natural, just some good moral advice, just some moral news for decent boys and girls. It's way more than that. It's the supernatural provision of God for you and me. That's the good news. And that's what we get to live into. You know, it's interesting when you think about the perspective of the ancient world. Around the Mediterranean Sea, there were a number of different places. And in all those different places, they worshiped different fake, false gods. And in these different cities, wherever they were, they would build a temple. And in Ephesus, there was one temple. In Colossae, there was a different temple. And and inside of those temples, there was always a, a God room. There would be a room inside that temple where there would be an idol that would sit in that God room, and that would be where God was. Well, as the Romans began to conquer these different places, they would go into those temples, and they would go into that God room, and they would take that God out of that room, and they would add it to their God collection. That's just kind of the way that they would operate. Well, in 63 BC, they conquered the region of Israel. And when the Romans conquered the region of Israel in 63 B.C., they they went all the way to Jerusalem and they went to the temple where the Jews worshipped their God. And when they got to that temple, they went inside and the Roman commander went all the way to the God room of the temple to get the idol to take back to his place. But you know what that Roman general found when he got there? Nothing. Nothing. It was so baffling to the Romans at that time that they thought that the Jews must be atheistic because they didn't have a God in a room. But their God was spirit. Now, here's the thing, and this is so important for us to think about and remember when we think about the supernatural nature of our God. When Matthew writes his prophecy, he says that Jesus shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Our God doesn't live in a room. Our God is not living in a house. Our God is living with us. Jesus, the revelation of God, and today the Holy Spirit residing inside of us. Friends, that is not a natural understanding of the universe. It is a supernatural understanding of the universe. But it's absolutely essential. Because we are not good enough to earn our way to God. We are sinful and we are broken people. But thankfully, God has supernaturally intervened to provide forgiveness through Jesus and hope in Him and provision of the Holy Spirit so that we might live out the life that God has called us to. Now, friends, as I I, I say all of those things, I I just want to ask you what is your understanding of Christianity? Is it just some moral advice or is it God's supernatural intervention? If you are are here today and you have never trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, know this, if this is beginning to make sense to you and you are leaning in and, and you are curious about the claims of Christ, know that that is not by accident and it's not by nature and it's not by manipulation on my part. It's because The Holy Spirit of God is supernaturally pursuing you, inviting you, even where you sit this morning, to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you're here today and you do know Christ and you have trusted in Him, but you're thinking about the things that are lying in front of you and you don't have a natural explanation for how you will get through those things and continue to to walk in obedience to our God, then guess what? May you be encouraged as well. As we leave this room, we don't leave it alone, but we leave it with God with us, who is able to supernaturally provide for us and give us the strength to walk and to follow Him in this life. See, friends, it's not just a natural explanation, there's a supernatural thing going on. Michael Green, in his commentary on Matthew, uh says this. He says, it does not fit with the pluralist idea that each of us is getting through to God in his or her own way. God got through to us in his way. And Jesus is no mere teacher, no guru, no Muhammad or Gandhi. He is God with us. That is the essential claim on which Christianity is built. It is a claim that cannot be abandoned without abandoning the faith in its entirety. Friends, we have a supernatural God who is pursuing us. We have a supernatural God who is saving us. It's not just a natural explanation. The first thing we see from these verses. There's a second thing that I want us to see from these verses. and That second thing is this, favored and not earned. Favored, not earned. And to really make sense of this, I want us to look over at Luke's gospel again at the account of Mary's visit with the angel. Now, when the angel shows up and talks to Mary, this amazing thing happens. It says, and the angel came and he said to Mary, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But then it says, but she was greatly troubled at the saying. By greatly troubled, we might insert that she was absolutely terrified that this angel had shown up. Now, when we hear that, we're surprised. And the reason why we're surprised is because we are so familiar with this story. Of course, the angel showed up, Mary. That's what the angel does. The angel shows up and talks to you. We, we've, we've got this set up in scenes around our house. We sing songs about it. I mean, this is what happens. For us, this is old news. But for her, it was absolutely new news, and it was out of the ordinary. Mary was surprised and she was terrified because it broke a historical trend. You see, God had revealed Himself through new Scripture delivered through prophets from the time of Abraham, really, all the way down through the time of Malachi. But there was a period of 400 years that preceded Mary's life where God did not speak through prophets any longer. There was a 400-year period of silence. So when the angel shows up, that silence is being broken. And when silence is broken in your life, it's scary, isn't it? You, know, you think you're there by yourself and somebody then whispers at you from behind and you're like a cat and you spring to the ceiling. That's what happened. She was not expecting to hear from God because God wasn't speaking to anybody. But even beyond just that historical reason, Mary was surprised that God would be speaking to her. Because again, there's nothing special about her. There's a mythology that is built up around Mary that has made her into something, this superhuman, some kind of titan, some kind of perfect person who had some special birth of her own. But that is not what the Bible teaches, and that's not what history reveals about who Mary really is. Mary was a sinner. She was a a normal person, just like you and me, small-town girl living in a lonely world. That's who she was. And so when an angel shows up, no doubt she was going, who am I that an angel would visit me? And so she's concerned. But in that moment, God doesn't leave her hanging as to why God showed up to talk to her. He lets her know. And it was not because she had earned it. God doesn't say, you just got this merit badge, and so I'm going to put this merit badge on your chest, Mary, because it's a prize, or here's a trophy that I'm going to give to you instead what is said is that she is favored she is a favored one now what does that word favor mean? well at the core of the original word is the root word for grace. Mary was graced by God she was given something that she did not earn Mary would would get to bear Jesus as her son as a gracious gift of God, not because she had earned it, but because she was favored by him. And friends, that's important for us to remember, because as we sit here today, 2,000 years later, if we have a relationship with God, it's not because we earned it. It's because God has graced us. He's favored us. Well, why is it that we have access to God's word? Well, because He gave us that grace. How is it that we have come to a saving relationship with Jesus? It's because He got us the message and He had it make sense in our minds through the work of His Spirit. How is it that we have believed? Belief itself is a gift that God has given to us. Friends, we are, are saved not because we have earned it. We are saved because God has graced us. And so for that, we have something much in common with Mary. But I want us to think for just a moment before we conclude this section, by thinking about what being graced by God, what being favored by God meant for Mary. It actually meant a number of things. One of the things that it meant for her to be favored by God was that she would experience some really hard things. You realize being favored by God means that she would see her firstborn crucified, that's really hard. That's really hard. You realize that being graced by God would, would cause her not just to see her firstborn crucified, but would also cause her to see another of her sons who would grow up to believe that the oldest son was the Son of God, to be killed for his faith as well. She would see that as well. That's some hard things. This grace would also mean that she would be misunderstood for the nine months of her pregnancy, her first pregnancy. Instead of having a shower and everybody celebrating, people were whispering in the shadows about the circumstances surrounding her pregnancy. It meant that she would have to give birth in a a different town, and she'd have to lay him in a manger and not at home with her friends. These, among many other things we could think of, were some of the difficult things that being graced by God meant for her. But it did not just mean those hard things. It also meant some amazing things. Mary would see some amazing things because of God's grace to her. I mean, think about it. She would feel Jesus' kick before she ever saw him walk on water. She she would hear him coo before he ever preached. She would see him receive gifts before he ever gave gifts. And she would see his ministry grow and develop and have a front row seat this from the very start that would have a perspective unlike any other human would have of Jesus. It's fascinating that Luke writes his gospel and includes so many details about Mary and the encounter that she had. I think it's because Luke probably spent some time interviewing Mary and telling her story. Events, no doubt, that go beyond chapters one and two were from Mary's perspective as Luke shares them with us. She saw some amazing things as well. God graced her with some hard things, and He graced her with some amazing things, but friends, also let's not forget that He graced her with an eternally changing relationship. Because she gave birth to Jesus, she would meet the one who would eventually die, not just for the sins of the world, but for her sins, that it might transform and revolutionize her life. Friends, I I go through all of that today because as we gather this morning, when we think of being graced by God, oftentimes we only want to focus on Category 3 or Category 2. If God is gracious to us, then we'll get to see some neat stuff. And if God is gracious to us, then our eternity might be changed. But that's just what grace looks like. But let's remember that the grace of God to us also includes His provision to see us through difficult times. It's important for us to remember that because as I look around the room, there are some hard things that you're going through today. But God's grace is sufficient for those things as well. Friends, we are favored by God. We have not earned our relationship with him, but he has given it to us in his grace. The gift of Jesus is for you. Make no mistake. We remember that as we see His provision for decent people like Mary and Joseph. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, thank you so much for just this great passage of Scripture. We thank you for how it reminds us that you are a supernatural God capable of doing things far beyond what our natural world might expect. Thank you that you are who you are and that you have chosen to intervene on our behalf and to give us life. May we, like Mary and Joseph, believe and embrace by faith what you have done for us. Thank you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.